Oh God, how amazing it is to gather, uh, Lord, as your people, to be able to, to sing and rehearse the power of the gospel in song and even to reflect as we took communion today. Uh, Lord, we do believe that every word in the Bible is inerrant, that it is useful, that, uh, Lord, that it is inspired by you. And Lord, that includes uh, the Old Testament. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, launch this new study throughout 1 Samuel, that you would just bless your people with it. Lord, there are things in here, there are truths that you want us to learn, that you want us to apply, that you want us to know. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the discipline and the focus through the power of the Holy Spirit to be receptive uh, to what you have to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One night, a wife found her husband standing over their infant's crib. As she watched him looking down at their very first baby, she noticed that she saw on his face a mixture of emotions, that she saw on her husband's face uh, delight and amazement, enchantment, but also there was also doubt and skepticism, even disbelief. She was so touched by this unusual display of deep emotions, and with her eyes glistening, she kind of slipped her arm around her husband's and looked at him and asked him the question, honey, what are you thinking about? And, she re- and he replied, it's amazing. I just can't believe anybody can make a crib like that for $46.50. <laughs> when I read that story, the old expression uh, came to my mind, that not miss the forest for the trees, right? Don't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, that uh, idiom, of course, is a warning uh, for us. To, to not get so focused on the individual details that you miss the big picture, you miss the forest. And of course, that can happen. You can become so overly focused on the minutia of specifics and details and information that you miss the main point. Well, I believe that old expression is not only true, but it's very helpful and useful as we read our Bibles. And especially as we launch this new study in an Old Testament book called 1 Samuel, that on one hand, we must look at the details of the trees in 1 Samuel, and not only the trees, but the leaves that are found on the trees, and not only the leaves, but the individual veins that are found on the leaves that are on the trees, meaning we will look at the details of each of these 31 chapters and the significance of these verses, which is why we'll be in 1 Samuel for quite some time. But we need to understand there is a danger in that. And the danger is that we can miss the forest for the trees. And so while we'll look at the significance of each chapter, we must be vigilant in not losing the overall picture of what 1 Samuel is all about. Because if we do, we will be just like that man. We'll be standing over the crib of 1 Samuel and we'll miss the baby. We'll miss the true meaning of what this book is all about. And so to aid us, uh, I want us to understand, again, the forest of 1 Samuel. So this is going to be somewhat of a unique sermon. I'm going to give kind of an overview of 1 Samuel. Look at the historical background. We're going to look at some of the main themes and just give an overview just to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees. So the first question uh, we are going to uh, look at today uh, is, where does 1 Samuel fit in the overall story of the Bible? Okay, where does 1 Samuel fit in the overall story of uh, the Bible? And to answer that question, we need to zoom out a bit, if you will. And we need to understand that there are actually eight books of the Bible that come 
before 1 Samuel. We have Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books known as the Torah. And then you have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Now, one thing that I'm going to highlight is that in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth actually belonged in the Old Testament writings. And so Judges actually came right before uh, 1 Samuel. More on that in a moment. But one thing that we need to understand is that there uh, is a dominant theme that runs not only through those first eight books of the Bible, but throughout the whole Old Testament and even throughout uh, the New Testament as well. And that theme is God fulfilling his promise that he made to Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This uh, very important promise was God uh, basically promising Adam and Eve that there would come an offspring, there would come uh, uh, an heir, uh, a son, that would eventually crush the head of the serpent. A serpent represents Satan and sin and evil. That there would come an offspring through Adam and Eve that would eventually make everything right again. Okay, that promise dominates every book in the Bible. In fact, God later specifies this promise in various ways, but one uh, way that he specifies is to actually Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, he promises that this offspring would actually be a king. Okay, so this promise that's being passed down, it's basically being rehearsed in every generation. This promise that there's one that will come and make all things right again. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Joseph, everyone is longing and anticipating for this promised one. So you can imagine the anticipation. Basically, every son that's born as these sons are growing up, they're wondering, is this the promised one? Is this the one that will make all things right again? And as you go through all of these central figures in the Old Testament, they have a lot of promise to them. They, they start out really strong, and it's almost like, oh, is this the promised one? But then we learn of some major flaws and learn that they're not the promised one. When you move out of Genesis and you get to Exodus, we find God's people who are enslaved to the Egyptians under Pharaoh's rule. Things are not looking good for God's people here. Despite God's people numbering in the millions, they had no one to lead them. They had no land of their own. They were under Egyptian rule for 400 years. It's at that point that God raises up a leader named Moses, a very significant leader who also shows a lot of promise. Could he be the one that, that was promised for, uh, from the very beginning? Moses leads God's people out of slavery, leads his people through the wilderness for 40 years, but Moses also has deep flaws and sin. And because of that, they're on the cusp of the promised land, but Moses is not uh, allowed to enter in. Moses dies, and so God raises up another leader, Joshua. Joshua is a phenomenal leader, leads God's people through military victory. After military victory, they get into the promised land, but also Joshua is not the one. They enter the promised land, but they fail to eliminate all of their enemies. So they have land now, but they are very disorganized and vulnerable. And because Joshua dies, there's now a leadership void. And this leadership void lead, led to all kinds of problems like idolatry and immorality, a lack of trust in God. God's people are a mess. And this takes us to the period known as the Judges. The book of Judges can be summed up this way, that God's people were stuck in this vicious cycle, that they would forget about God, disobey God, and so God would raise up an opposing nation to defeat them. 
And so God's people would cry out for help. Then God would raise up a leader known as a judge to save them. God would save them through this judge. And then God's people would fall back and forgetting him back into idolatry and immorality. And it's interesting, with each problem that arose during the period of the judges, God would raise up a leader. These judges, there were a number of them, like Samson and Deborah and Gideon. And they almost seem like kings, but they're not kings. They're probably the, the closest thing to a superhero that we have. But, but they're only here for a certain period of time. They're, they're raised up to meet the need of the moment, but it was more reactionary problem solving. They were not kings. Now, Judges is, again, a very important book because chronologically it comes right before 1 Samuel. Again, Ruth belonging to uh, the Old Testament writings and so right before 1 Samuel, the last verse, as we're reading the Old Testament, comes in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And this is a phenomenal summary of where God's people are as we approach 1 Samuel. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right, that's the last verse. That's the summary. That's the condition that God's people are in. There's no king. There's no ruler. There's no one to organize them. And so as a result, people are just kind of living however they want to live. There's no established and permanent political uh, authority. Anarchy reigned. And the people are just kind of making up morality as they see fit. Okay, so there's internal instability. There's corruption in this, and there's immorality. But most importantly, there's a crisis of leadership. Okay, that promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, is still echoing in God's people's minds. They're still wondering who is the promised one, who's the one to come, and, and we desperately need someone to lead us and rule us. In fact, in the book of Judges, four times it stated that there was no king. There was no king. There was no king. And so it seems as though 1 Samuel is going to solve that issue. Now, that's a lot of Bible we just covered. I understand that. It's a lot of Bible that we just reviewed here. But again, it helps us to understand the forest, helps us to understand where does 1 Samuel fit in the overall story of the Bible, that these events that take place in 1 Samuel occurred about 3,000 uh, years ago. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the, the date that it begins here is in 1100 uh, BC. I just want you to see kind of these three main figures that 1 Samuel is really centered on. 1 Samuel centered on Samuel, who is the last of the judges. Again, it begins about 1100 BC. And then you have the reign of Saul. This is the first king of Israel. And then, of course, you have David, who's the second king of Israel, but he's the greatest uh, king in all of Israel. And that's basically the time period that 1 Samuel is going to cover. Now, what's also interesting is that, again, Judges comes right before uh, 1 Samuel, and Judges covers about 200 years of history. Okay? And there is overlap between Judges and 1 Samuel. In fact, there are three judges that existed and ministered to God's people at the exact same time. We have Samuel, who we're going to get to know very well throughout this study, but then you also have Samson. And just to give kind of a, a map here, so Samson is up here um, near Dan. That, this is basically the area that he uh, kind of ministered and, and uh, gave the Philistines a lot of issue. 
Uh, Samuel is down here in the south. That's predominantly where he ministered. But then there's, a, there's another judge, less known, Abdon is his name, and he was kind of on the east side of the Jordan River. All three of them are ministering at the same time. And so there's, again, a lot of overlap, and there's a lot of uh, connectivity between these two books. You could basically think about it this way, that the issues that are in the book of Judges kind of sets up this anticipation that 1 Samuel will solve those issues. Of course, this is highlighting, um, uh, we have uh, Saul's uh, extent of his kingdom. It's in the green there. But I want you to notice uh, David's uh, kind of extent of his kingdom. And when he comes, he's actually going to enlarge this kingdom. So this is a little bit more zoomed out. The gray here is Saul's extent of his kingdom. And now the green, all of this is David's extent of his kingdom. So David very vastly expands the kingdom of, of Israel and rules uh, in amazing ways. And we're going to see a little bit of that in 1 Samuel. So I hope that helps us, again, again, historically and geographically kind of know where 1 Samuel fits. But now I want to talk about what 1 Samuel is all about. I want to talk now about the purpose and give a little bit of overview um, of this wonderful book. First thing I want you to know is that uh, there was no such thing as 1st and 2nd Samuel. It was just called the book of Samuel. Okay, it was actually just one big story. Uh, we have uh, since, uh, since then have divided up into two because of the length of it, but it's really just one story capturing the major transitions for the nation of Israel. Okay, that's the big purpose. That's what I want us to understand is that this book is about transitions, Okay, the first major transition that we're going to see, and that's really important, is the dramatic transition uh, of, of Israel's political situation, that Israel moves from being this weak, marginal, small tribe that was always overshadowed by the powerful Philistines. They move from this weak, uh, marginal tribal to a centralized, independent monarchy that becomes a world-class power. It's a huge, huge transition. Like as we open 1 Samuel, uh, Israel is being dominated by the Philistines. When you get toward the end of 1 Samuel, and especially 2 Samuel, David has all but eliminated the Philistine threat, and he has established a settled dynasty that would last for several centuries. Okay, massive transition that we're going to see. Now, the second transition, it's connected to this, is the movement from being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings, okay, being uh, almost ruled in a kind of a theocracy-type manner to more of a monarchy. Okay, and that, like, that transition is also very significant. And we're going to see kind of God's people stumble through that transition in maybe some awkward ways. And it's called First Samuel here, not because Samuel authored the book, but because he is such a significant figure. He's the one that leads them through that transition, Again, Samuel is the last of the judges, but he heads the order of the prophets. He puts the first king of Israel, Saul, on the throne, and then he anoints the second king, David, who's the greatest of all of Israel's kings. But then thirdly, another significant transition is that of a spiritual or religious transition. God's people move from worshiping predominantly in a tabernacle to that of a temple. Okay, this is also very, very significant. And really, David leads the charge in this. 
Uh, it's hard to, to, to overemphasize how preoccupied David was in establishing the temple. Uh, we get uh, uh, glimmers of this in 1 Samuel. It gets more unpacked in 2 Samuel. But David is the one who organizes the Levites for proper worship in the temple. And David borderline becomes obsessed with this. And the reason for that is because he wants the worship of God to be central among God's people. He's trying to bring it in a more apparent uh, way, more meaningful religious orientation for the people of God. It's a big transition. And then finally, uh, the other uh, enormous transition is that from Saul to David. Okay, this is usually what we think of when we think about 1 Samuel. We go from the first king to the second king. And that is, that's also very important to know that there's a, a powerful narrative uh, that's, that's being played out here when you contrast the rise and fall of Saul to the anointing and long-awaited enthronement of David. That's going to run throughout uh, this book. I think it's good, a good opportunity at this point in time to clarify the genre of 1 Samuel. This is a historical narrative genre, okay? meaning uh, it's history, but it's telling a story. Okay? It's, it's recounting true and real events, but it's being done so with purpose. Okay? The events that are selected are very intentional. The way that they're described are very intentional as these themes emerge from the story that are meant to become practical lessons for the readers. Okay, this is very different than walking through Titus, walking through 2 Peter, what we did last year. Uh, that genre there, you've got these neatly tight arguments in paragraph form. That's not 1 Samuel. Okay, 1 Samuel is more of a narrative. It's more of a story. And so we take larger chunks and we look at key themes that emerge. But man, 1 Samuel, I don't know if you've ever sat down and read through all of it in one sitting. I would strongly encourage that just to see the whole kind of narrative pop to you on more of a macro level. But this is one of the greatest literary works in human history. It really is. It's masterfully told. The stories capture the imagination. Uh, and there's all kinds of drama that, that unfolds here. Let me just give you a taste of what we're going to see we're going to see uh, Hannah's heartfelt pleadings for a child as she wrestles with painful infertility. That's in chapter 1. We're going to see the, the fall of, of the priest and judge Eli and his house because of his sinfully wayward sons. We're going to see the calling of young Samuel as a prophet as he establishes uh, the, the office of a prophet. We'll see the young shepherd boy David and his musical talent, but even more so the defeat of the giant Goliath. We'll see the manic King Saul's dramatic rise and fall and his eerie visit to that witch in chapter 28 and his obsession with killing David. We're also going to see really the, the beautiful friendship that unfolds between David and then Saul's son, Jonathan. It's, it's kind of, you read this story, just like, man, it seems so random, but it's just a, a beautiful display of, of uh, biblical friendship there. And all of these are, and more are, are laced with just high drama, uh, even intrigue. You're almost on the edge of your seat as you're waiting to see what happens next. These stories here within First Samuel, they contain such theological insight and even mystery. 
maybe to, to zoom out uh, once more here just to see kind of the overall flow of 1 Samuel. One uh, commentary basically argues that you can divide this up into three different sections or three different parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 7 that deal with a prophet from God's grace. That's, of course, referring to Samuel. The second part there is in chapters 8 through 14, dealing with a king in God's place, which, of course, is about Saul. And then chapters 15 through 31 is a man after God's heart referring to David. Now, while this book, uh, of course, is centered on those significant transitions, the book of 1 Samuel also contains several themes that will emerge. And again, this is historical narrative. So just like any story, it contains these themes that are intentional, that are meant to shape and teach the reader. Okay, so I want us to see four minor themes, excuse me, as we move through 1 Samuel. Here's the first minor theme is that we're going to see the importance of healthy leadership. See the importance of healthy leadership. When you think about leadership, don't just think national or political leadership, kind of on the macro level. First Samuel is going to show us the importance of leadership in nearly every area of our lives. And we're going to see uh, both examples of good, healthy leadership, but also uh, examples of bad and poor uh, leadership. For example, we see um, really bad spiritual religious leadership by Eli the priest, who in chapter 1 doesn't even recognize desperate and heartfelt prayer from Hannah. We also see poor leadership in the home. Eli the priest uh, fails to correct his sinful sons. And we see really his leadership in the home being contrasted with Elkanah. Uh, in chapter 1, who leads his family to worship and make sacrifices year in and year out to Shiloh. We also see the need for strong leadership by Samuel, who's in charge of, of anointing the first and second king and to make sure that he's doing so by looking at the heart, not just the outward appearance. And then, of course, we see uh, bad examples of leadership uh, by Saul, who fails many times and providing the leadership that Israel desperately needed. Look, leadership is all over 1 Samuel because leadership touches every area of our lives. Leadership is so important in our community, in our country, in, in the places of our employment, in our families, in our relationships, our friendships, even in our church. Leadership is so central. And we are going to be challenged time and time again in two areas of leadership. Number one, if you're in a position of leadership, which I would argue almost every single one of us actually is in a position of leadership, whether you know it or not, you will be challenged to consider, what kind of leader am I? Am I leading faithfully? Am I leading with, with biblical principles? But then secondly, the second aspect of leadership is how am, I how am I following the leaders that God has put in my life? Am I following the right kind of leaders, the good leaders that are maybe outlined in the Bible as God has put those individuals in my life? So both how you lead and then how you follow will help us as we move through 1 Samuel. And then the, the second uh, minor theme that we're going to see is the necessity of having deep trust in God. We see this uh, contrast among the main characters in this book of what uh, a robust trust in God looks like compared to having a thin trust in God or even a misplaced uh, trusting in something other than God. For example, 1 Samuel 4, there's a misplaced, misplaced trust in, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which is used by Israel in kind of a, a failed effort to win a battle against their enemies. 
We see King Saul demonstrate several instances of misplaced trust. He puts his trust in sacrifices in chapter 13. He puts his trust in oaths in chapter 14, in a lot-taking ceremony in chapter four, at the end of chapter 14, and even in a witch in chapter 28. Even David himself, at the end of 1 Samuel, he conducts this census. And he wants to know how powerful he is, how powerful his army is. And so as a result of that, there's this massive plague that breaks out in punishment. Now, in contrast to that, we also see several profound and deep examples of trust in God. Uh, Jonathan, again, Saul's son uh, and close friend of David, performs a heroic attack on the enemy based on his belief that God would save him. Chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Of course, we have an example of David, right? Bravely fights against the giant Goliath based on his belief, uh, chapter 17, verse 47, that God saves not by sword or spear. Another example uh, is, is David, who's on the run, being hunted by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. And David has several opportunities to take Saul's life, and he doesn't. He trusts in the timing of God and waits for him, demonstrating deep trust in the Lord. Look, this theme, I'm really excited about this theme as it kind of unfolds throughout 1 Samuel. This theme is going to confront us, not with if you trust in God, but the condition of your trust in God. Trusting in God tends to be kind of this cliché. Yeah, just trust in the Lord. You know, he'll take care of everything, right? It's almost like this one-time event that, that we need to trust in the Lord. Now, trusting in God is much more complex than that. You can have a deeply grounded trust in the Lord, or you can have a, a thinned-out trust in the Lord. You can have a trust in the Lord that's robust, that's built on his character and his promises, or you can have a trust in God that's kind of leaking as you go through various things in life. You also have a, a misplaced trust where you believe in God, but you're looking to other things, people, and experiences to provide to you what only the Lord can give you. We can also trust in the Lord, but have, have a hidden agenda behind it. Or we say, yes, I trust in you, God, but in our hearts, we're only trusting in God and following him so that he'll give us the life that we want, <laughs> right? It's almost like using God for our own end. And we'll be confronted with all of these various aspects of what it means to truly trust in the Lord, to live by faith and not by sight. That's a big theme. Another minor theme here through the book of 1 Samuel uh, is the sneaky seriousness of sin. I wanted to, you to see both aspects of how serious sin is, but also how sneaky sin can be. Uh, we have this all throughout. We have the sins of Eli and his sons that resulted in their deaths in chapters 2 through 4. We have a, a lack of reverence for the Ark of the Covenant in chapter uh, 6, which led to 70 Israelites dying. We have Saul's disobedience, refusing to, to wait for Samuel for the sacrifice in chapter 13, which resulted in the Lord's judgment against Saul. Saul also uh, disobediently uh, spares uh, an enemy here, their animals and their kings, which basically resulted in God rejecting him as king of Israel. 1 Samuel provides example after example of what we know to be true in Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. Or there's a seriousness to sin, but there's also an element in which 
sin can be very sneaky. Temptations that we face can be tricky to identify. And we see that here even within the main characters. That one thing that pops to us is how each of these characters in various points, various times, struggles with pride. They struggle with self-sufficiency. They struggle with stubbornness that ends up robbing them of God's grace. And this is such a, a warning to us as we, as we walk through 1 Samuel. There's just like this blinking light for us to take sin seriously, even the small sins in our lives. That one thing that happens as we allow sin to kind of linger in our hearts and our lives is that sin grows. And when it grows, it, re- it wreaks havoc on our lives. It causes destruction and, and, and disrupts all of the, uh, God's purposes in, our, in that particular area of what he wants to do in our lives. And as we read this, it's like, man, if this happened to God's anointing, if this happened to the leaders that, uh, of God's people in this nation, man, how much more can this happen to us? That first Samuel will help, I think, expand our view of God and his holiness for us to say, along with God's people in chapter 6, verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? is something that will be pressed in as we walk through this book. And then the fourth uh, minor theme I want us to understand is the pervasive providence of God. God's providence, his sovereign power is all over the place. And one of the things that I love about 1 Samuel is we see God's providence not just in the big events, not just the major events, but it's in unexpected events. It's in just everyday, mundane, the ordinary that God uses for his purposes. Let me just give you a taste of where we see this. He used Hannah's contentious relationship with uh, Penina. And this is just a kind of a family dispute, right? How many have you been there where you've got kind of a family issue, right? The Lord uses that to prompt Hannah to pray for Samuel, and God responds, right? Just an everyday, normal issue that God uses providentially. Another example, God leads Saul to Samuel as Saul is just searching for his lost donkey, right? Probably something that happened maybe on a regular basis, looking for a lost animal, runs into Samuel, leads to his anointing. Do you remember how David learned about Goliath, right? Just, just a mundane event uh, of David taking food to his brothers, who are out there fighting. God uses that to help David see that there's this giant Goliath who's not respecting God. Those are just ordinary, mundane events that God used providentially to turn into significant events, displaying his glory. Again, just a few of examples, but God's timing, as we see throughout 1 Samuel, is always perfect because he is the Lord of history. There is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as kind of things just happening by accidents. No, everything is happening according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. And I think we can take great comfort in that. We can take comfort in the fact that there is one who sees the end from the beginning. There is one who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, who is behind every event in history. We can apply that powerful principle as we walk through every season of our own lives. So wow, we've seen a lot. That's a big overview, right? The historical background, some of these minor themes, 
right? We've seen even the purpose, an overview of 1 Samuel. But I do want to close uh, this morning by making sure that we understand the main theme of 1 Samuel. This minor theme is going to pop up here and there, but the main theme that is driving 1 Samuel is this, is the supreme kingship of Jesus. All right, now to understand this, we actually need to look at verses 1 and 2. Again, Ashley, thank you for reading that. We're actually going to look at this. We need to remember, as we look at verse 1, we need to remind ourselves of the very last verse in Judges. Remember, there's no king in Israel, and everyone is doing what was right in their own eyes. Okay, we read that, go to 1 Samuel 1, and we open it up with great expectation, great anticipation, and yet we are rewarded in a quite surprising and puzzling way. These ver- very first couple verses here do not incite excitement or promise, but they're quite boring. Like This is not what you would normally expect. They're describing a certain man of obscurity here named Elkanah, who is from Ramah. So on one hand, we're reading this, and we know Judges, and we know the promise from Genesis 3.15, and we ask ourselves, is this the one? Is this the promised one? Is Elkanah him? Is he the, the king that Israel needs at this moment? But then we look at where Elkanah is from, and we quickly conclude, surely not. He's from Ramah, a distant hill country of Ephraim, and his great-great-grandfather was an Aphrathite. That meant nothing to the people of God 3,000 years ago. That probably means very little to many of us in this room. So the way that this book begins, Elkanah is a nobody from nowhere. And furthermore, he has a domestic issue on his hand, a.k.a. he's got two wives. Not just one, but two. And his second wife, Penina, uh, is very fertile. She has a lot of children here. And that creates tension that we're going to see next week with Elkanah's first wife, Hannah, who he loves more. Hannah's name means grace or favor. But verse 2 describes the very worst thing that could have happened to an Israelite woman at this time is that she was barren. She couldn't have children. She was unable to produce an heir, to produce uh, an offspring, to produce some sort of son that would not only carry forward the family line, but also failed to be what every Israelite was waiting for and longing for, the promised one. She failed to produce that. And so her situation here, her condition, is one of despair and darkness. It was lifeless. It was, it was hopeless. See, Hannah's troubles here are representative of Israel's troubles. That Hannah here becomes a symbol for the nation of Israel. That in the same way that Hannah was yearning and longing for one to come from her womb, so too the nation of Israel was yearning and longing for one to come to rule as king. See, they're in the same boat. They're in the same situation. Both are experiencing despair and hopelessness. And this is the way that 1 Samuel opens, in obscurity and in despair. This is one of the things that pops, these first two verses, the obscurity of these names and places. Nobody would have cared about Elkanah. Nobody would have cared about Hannah, who's barren, and this place, Ramah, this, out in the, the hills of Ephraim. 
but their importance comes in their unimportance. Again, 3,000 years ago, no one even cares. Very insignificant, but that's the point. See, we would anticipate 1 Samuel to open with the famous, the powerful, the, prom- the prominent to solve the issues of Judges 21 verse 25. And yet we are met with just a bunch of ordinary nobodies. And that's one of the main takeaways of 1 Samuel, that the solution to Israel's problem of leadership and honestly the solution to many of our problems in our lives do not come in expected places. That 1 Samuel is about a God who makes something out of nothing, who brings life out of death, who turns a bunch of nobodies into somebodies. And that's a key element within the economy of God's kingdom. He flips everything upside down. That he uses the weak and the weary and the ordinary, and he uses them to accomplish his eternal purposes for his glory. See, even though Elkanah was from this hill country of Ephraim, whose great-great-grandfather was from Ephrathite, meant very very little 3,000 years ago. And yet, it actually has some significance for us today. See, Aphrodite was actually an old name for another little town that had very little significance then, but has great significance for us today. Aphrodite was another name for Bethlehem. And Bethlehem becomes very significant, not only because King David's story begins there in chapter 16, but Bethlehem becomes the most famous town in human history because of Jesus. See, there's a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This prophecy happens three centuries from 1 Samuel, and it says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." And that prophecy will be fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the one true king of Israel. He is what Israel needed. He is what you and I need the most. See, the greatest problem of Israel was not a leadership issue. It was not what form of government were they to use. Israel's greatest problem was a sin problem. That sin was their mortal wound, and they needed a surgery. A bad king would just make the disease worse. It would spread. A good king at best would just be a Band-Aid that would slow the bleed. But they needed open-heart surgery. They needed a a heart transplant, and God is the surgeon. And he begins this, this heart transplant by making a covenant, making a promise with David that he would have an offspring whose kingdom will never end, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And that promise, that covenant, is fulfilled in Jesus, who 2,000 years ago and 1,000 years after the book of, of 1 Samuel here would come, and he breaks the power of sin through his death on the cross, dealing with sin once and for all. And through his resurrection, he offers a heart transplant for all who believe, for all who say, that's my king. I want Jesus to be on the, on the throne of my heart, and I want to submit and surrender to him. And that's the question for each and every one of us as we walk through 1 Samuel. Is Jesus your king? 
Are you submitting and surrendering to him? That, that theme, that question is going to reverberate throughout our study over the next several months because there is only one true king and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you for the power of your word and Lord, just this beautiful Old Testament book. Lord, there is so much in here, so much truth. And Lord, the reality is, is that this book is really about Jesus. Lord, this book reveals our great need for him, our great need for a king. God, we, even though we try so often to be our own rulers, we fail. Lord, we need someone beyond ourselves. So Lord, I pray as we begin this new study that you would go before us. Lord, as we walk through various things in life, Lord, you are the, the sovereign one who knows exactly what we need when we need it. And so, Lord, as we trust in walking through this book of the Bible one chapter at a time, Lord, would you guide us and lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.